This isn't real. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see, then real is simply electrical signals interpreted by your brain. How confident are you that what you see, what you touch, and what you smell is real? The vividness of our senses can cause us to take them for granted. But how complex are they, and is it possible to duplicate them? What might it mean to take our senses apart and put them back together in different ways? Today, I'm meeting with David Marino from the SPIN Lab, a research group at the University of British Columbia, to talk about senses, bodies, minds, and technology. So, um, I'm David, and I work for the Sensory Perception and Interaction Lab at UBC. And um, the Sensory Perception Interaction Lab, or SPIN Lab, uh, basically what they do is stuff like um, tangibles, haptics, um, putting touch into computers, um, affective computing, which is basically making computers sensitive to emotions and displaying emotions, as well as um, robotics and stuff like that. Um, so basically, um, I got involved because for most of my life I was doing design work, um, and then I came to UBC and I uh, got interested in cognitive science, and I went to the cognitive systems program at UBC, and um, I sort of stumbled upon SPIN through uh, a human-computer interactions course that I took, and it was this it sort of opened my eyes to this really cool discipline of human-computer interaction, or HCI, and um, it sort of just um, united these really cool fields of psychology, cognitive science, uh, computer science, and design, and I was like, oh man, this is awesome. When I visited his lab, David showed me a device that looked a little bit like an earbud or a ring that emits subtle vibrations. When I touched it to my face, I could hear and feel the music David was playing on his computer, even though it wasn't playing audibly. So when we visited you, you told us about a couple of projects. One was a device that uses vibration to augment audio perception. Does that have a name? And could you describe the project in a little more detail? The goals, motivation, inspiration, and so on. Yeah, so it doesn't have a name just yet. Um, but basically the idea is uh, whether or not we can use vibrotactile feedback, like what you would feel on your phone, to enhance the intelligibility of speech in noisy conditions. So imagine you're at some noisy party or something and your friend's talking to you and you had a vibrator in your hand and basically it's vibrating to their voice in some way. W would that be able to help you understand what they're saying, basically? That sounds like it would have a lot of useful applications in noisy places, um, maybe like at a construction site, for example, right? Yeah, exactly. Construction sites, uh, noisy industrial shop floors and stuff like that. And it also has this um, option of being hands-free, too. So you can basically like be using your hands and doing things um, and while getting this um, vibrotactile feedback. And also another benefit of it, too, is if you wanted to enhance someone's uh, auditory signal, um, like the knee-jerk answer would be, oh, I'll just like enhance it through the auditory modality, right? Um, but it can be really easy to just sort of overload that modality. So it helps to offload that information to a different sensory modality, and it makes processing of information more efficient that way. I found this project really interesting. It was a surprising and powerful sensory experience 
to hear music through the vibration of my bones rather than through my ears. I wanted to know more about what had inspired this research. Part of the inspiration there was looking at basically old literature about multisensory integration and how we perceive speech. Um, there's this very old method used for deafblind individuals um, where you, it's called the Tadoma method, where you basically put your hand on someone else's face while they mm -hmm. speak, and it can help you sort of distinguish what sort of what they're basically saying. But it's not actually just for deafblind individuals. It can actually give you intelligibility boosts hmm. um, in noisy conditions as well. And so um, we thought it'd be really cool to sort of look at that sort of problem space, but also apply it to um, uh, sound of hearing population, because a lot of these other studies have been almost with uh, clinical populations, people who are very motivated to sort of um, uh, learn this new like mode of communication. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, we abstracted away just a, com a component of Tadoma speech, which is that feeling of your vocal folds vibrating when you speak. And um, we implemented it into just uh, a tiny vibrator that's about the size of a toonie. And um, we're looking at how effective it is, yeah. It seemed very effective when we visited you, like pressing it up against uh, my forehead or my temple, and just, it had a huge effect. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty neat. The word haptics is coming up a lot. Could you explain that for our listeners? Yeah, basically by haptics is this anything to do with touch, the sense of touch, basically. So like the, your cell phone vibrating, um, there's this idea of passive haptics, which is like not necessarily vibrations, but just sort of like just the experience of touching things like paper and stuff like that. So texture. Yeah, yeah. Listening to or feeling the device made me feel both physical and cognitive effects. I was curious about how David conceptualizes the mind-body split in his work. In this section, he's about to use the words aspirated and unaspirated, which refer to expelling air when you say a syllable versus not expelling air. You can feel the difference if you put your hand in front of your mouth and say the words round and pound. When you say pound, you'll feel that little puff of air. Yeah, so I would say that a very sort of like traditionalist or cognitivist way of viewing um, speech perception is that it's happening sort of all in the head. Mm -hmm. But we're seeing increasing evidence of basically a whole body speech perception system, not just something that's going on in the head. Um, so, for example, at UBC, um, Brian Gick is basically doing these studies where you can add a little puff of air onto someone's arm and they perceive um, basically phonemes going from like unaspirated to aspirated. So it like changes how you basically perceive the sounds. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's this idea that like Sure, there's things going on in the head, but in order to explain what's going on in the head, you need to look at the whole body. Next, I wanted to ask David about another project he had shown us when we visited his lab. Cuddle bits. Cuddle bits look a bit like a cross between robots and stuffed animals, but they didn't have faces. Instead, they responded to the emotion in a user's voice by moving in different ways. Some were furry, and one looked like it was made out of a mop head. I noticed from the video David showed us that different types of materials seem to play a role in the motions and emotions that the cuddle bits conveyed. In this section, David uses the term use case. In engineering, a use case simply describes how a system could be used to achieve a particular goal. 
So the Cuddle Bits were an initiative of another uh, grad student in the lab um, called Paul Bucci. And basically the story there is that the Spin Lab was developing this complex cuddle bot. And the idea behind the cuddle bot was that it's this furry, emotionally sensitive robot pet that you can have. And it would have use cases where, um, say, you're in like the children's hospital and there's a kid about to go through surgery and you need to calm the kid down somehow. And uh, you can't bring in like a real pet or anything like that. So like maybe in these sorts of situations, it would be useful to have something like a robot pet that could like emotionally respond to the kid's um, feelings and stuff like that. So um, the problem with the cuddle bot is that it's a really, really complicated design space. It's really complex. So what Paul decided to do was basically decompose the design space into sub-problems. So he was basically saying, I'm going to make a very tiny cuddle bot called a cuddle bit that'll basically just breathe. And I'm just going to look at breathing problems for that. Or I'm going to make another one that's like a tail flapping or a head wiggling and stuff like that. So really breaking it down to like a single plane of movement or a single dimension, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And in HCI, we'll, we call that just one degree of freedom. HCI and engineering and other sort of disciplines like that, we'll say one degree of freedom. It's free to vary in only one way. Whereas a cuddle bot was um, multi-degree of freedom. It had like many different ways in which it could vary. And the idea there is like once you sort of nail down these sort of design decisions, then you can recompose them all into the more complicated cuddle bot. But that's way down the road. So I saw one that emulated breathing with uh, almost like it was pulsating and other ones that would kind of rear up and um, make these really spooky movements. Mm -hmm. It's very impressive. Talk about the coverings that you used for the cuddle bits. I thought that was ingenious. Yeah, so if I can, I, I'm going to describe the cuddle bits a little bit more now. So imagine um, these tiny fur balls, basically. They're like little poofs, and they can sort of like fit in your hand, basically. Um, but if you removed their fur, they would have these basically wooden skeletons, like spherical wooden skeletons, basically. Mm -hmm. So um, the cool thing is you can just go out to a fabric store, buy a bunch of different kinds of fabric, and plop it on top, and like suddenly that's like almost like a new cuddle bit. It's like a new personality. <laughs> And did you find, as people interacted with the cuddle bits, that different colors or textures had an effect? Absolutely, actually. Um, not just like different colors, but also different actuation styles really affected how um, people perceived. Like they, they, it affected how people perceived the cuddle bits could express emotions. Basically, we ran a study that um, basically had participants try and use the cuddle bits to express emotions, and um, yeah, essentially like form factor really affected the types of emotions that those cuddle bits could um, express. But there was also a lot of variability between participants in like how they thought those cuddle bits could express emotions. So for example, some participants would be like, oh, this cuddle bit can only be angry. Whereas another participant would come to the same cuddle bit and be like, oh no, that's totally wrong. The cuddle bit can only be happy and all these other things. So when you talk about expressing emotions with the cuddle bits, if I remember rightly, that means that people would speak to them and then they would respond to something in those participants' voices. Is that right? Yeah. So um, this goes back to a study uh, basically creating a system called Voodle, which stands for vocal doodling. 
And the idea with that is that the participants could control the cuddle bits with their voice. So you would go up to it and go, and then the cuddle bit will move around to your voice. And, we and have, that's just the sound of your voice. It's not yeah. doing any kind of speech recognition. No, it doesn't look at the semantics or the context of what you're saying. It's moving purely to the form of your speech. Yeah, and so one of the primary use cases and goals that we wanted it to do is move to these effectual qualities of your speech. So having going up to it and going like, to make it like look, look angry versus ah, and make it look soft and whatever <laughs> ah is. And one thing that occurs to me with regard to this kind of interpretation or transformation of speech, are there possible cultural differences or individual differences that could be relevant to that? There are definitely major individual differences. Um, so what one movement looked like on one cuddle bit um, didn't look the same to another participant. Um, and the participant could um, basically, each participant has their own sort of individualized language that they use around the cuddle bit. So you and I could see the same movement mm -hmm. and interpret that as different emotions. Is totally. that correct? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, and also, like, we would want to vocalize with it differently. We would want to interact with it differently. So it needs to sort of accommodate that range. I don't know so much about, like, broader cultural implications. I Like, absolutely. Like, they're almost, they're, they're, like, definitely there. But, like, we just didn't look at it in the main study that we did. And you mentioned bringing in some voice actors and kind of specialists to... Yeah, we wanted sort of like a spread of experience um, with this particular project. Um, so, yeah, we were looking at like, what does a performance artist bring? What does a, a voice actress bring? What do they want out of that kind of a system? Mm -hmm. What does an audio technician want out of that kind of a system? And they actually gave us really different perspectives on what to design for, basically, and also how people used it, too. Like, for example, some people would be like, the voice actress was like, very into experimentation and trying out a different like different styles and stuff like that mm -hmm. whereas some other participants would find like one sound that got like one type of behavior out of it like they just go like ch -ch -ch -ch, and like they would just get stuck on it and they like wouldn't change at all they just keep going ch -ch -ch -ch. Yeah. that's interesting so it sounds like people had really different preferences for how they wanted to interact with these robots. Yeah, absolutely. And we were looking at ideal users too. Um, with the regular population, like interacting with the cuddle bits is like performance and that can cause some people some anxiety too. So it's interesting when you're demoing it, some people would be like, oh, no way. I'm not like, I'm not speaking to this thing. Yeah, I gonna... can't picture myself doing essentially baby talk to this yeah. robot, even if it is a very well animated one. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like it's hard to do. I got I got really used to doing it in the lab when I was developing it. I was just making funny noises all the time, and it became like completely invisible to me. So like it would just be like a normal day, and I'd be going like, whatever. Could you talk a little bit more about the role of senses in your work? You seem especially interested in sound, and I think uh, we often think of the senses as being singular. Do you find that that model holds in your work? Yeah, so a lot of the work that I do was within the context of language. And a naive way of looking at language, and by naive I don't mean uh, stupid, I just mean like a knee-jerk sort of first look uh, approach at language, is that language is this mainly auditory phenomena. Like it's the thing that's spoken and heard. Um, but language really is a modal. It's not tethered to any one particular 
sensory modality. Language can be like completely visual, as you see with sign language. It can be tactile. It doesn't really matter what sensory modality it is. Um, and also, you're continuously integrating information from other sensory modalities constantly, even if you're using uh, a spoken language, which you would be like, oh, so this is an auditory thing, so I'm only dealing with auditory information. Um, like, for example, if um, someone's making a, a ga sound at you, they're going ga, 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 and you see their face, but their face is making a da sound, going da, 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 you'll actually hear what they're saying as da instead of ga. So it's like that visual information is overriding that auditory information, and that's affecting how you perceive what they're saying. And that's basically an effect called the McGurk effect. And it's, a, again, this is this example of visual information competing with auditory information affecting how you perceive speech. So um, yeah, language is multisensory. And to explain how you perceive speech, you really need to be looking at like all these different sensory modalities. After hearing about the different projects David was involved in, I had a sense that his lab must be an exciting place to work. I asked him about what it's like to work with other people at the Spin Lab. I'd say um, collaboration is pretty fundamental to the work that I'm doing right now. Um, I go so far as like, it, like the studies wouldn't look the way they look right now if I wasn't collaborating with people constantly. Um, so the way the lab is set up, it's basically an open space with a bunch of other students in it. And the strength of that is that it really encourages collaboration between people. So it's really easy to bounce off ideas off one another. Um, um, and also it's like really easy to sort of like be critical and sort of like constructively critical and sort of like iterate and change your designs very mm -hmm. efficiently. Um, so, and it really shapes and strengthens, I think, the kind of research that you do. His response made me wonder what kinds of skills these collaborators bring to the lab environment. I would say, like, creativity is sort of not to be undervalued in this area. Like, a lot of, like, what I'm doing is basically design work. Um, so, yeah, obviously creativity is pretty important. There's these technical skills, which are handy, like programming, software development, that kind of stuff, and like um, physical prototyping. But a lot of um, a lot of those technical skills, I kind of just sort of learned by doing, basically. Like I learned most of my physical prototyping skills at the Spin Lab. I didn't come to the lab with all those skills. And as for software development and programming, like I worked on personal projects. I also took classes. There's a combination of things like that. David emphasized that creativity is necessary for design that is human-centered, which means it keeps real people and their real problems in mind throughout the design process. That might seem intuitive, but not all design processes are carried out that way. There is a period of time, and I guess it's still kind of happening, where designs were made that sort of weren't for humans. It was like, meant for this idealized thing that doesn't exist of this sort of like robot like slash engineer slash expert user and what would happen is um, you know they would lead to like many user er errors that could easily be resolved through better design stuff like that a canonical example that's used quite a lot and is in like basically I would say like the bible of this kind of thinking Don Norman's The Design of Everyday Things is, I've um, read that book there we go. Nice. 
is, um, yeah, so basically in World War II, they had these uh, training planes that pilots would use. And on the training planes, there would be a button that they would have to press to basically deploy their landing gear. And the only thing is when they move to the real planes, um, in the place of where the button is to press to deploy their landing gear was a button to jettison their fuel. So a lot of these pilots would like train up, go to a new plane, and then suddenly go boop, and then crash. Um, and it's just because they're not thinking of these like fundamental properties of human cognition when they're designing these systems. Wow, yeah, the consequences of that sound like they could be really serious, especially in industrial systems or transportation. Absolutely. You always need to think about just limits of human cognition when you're designing. doesn't matter what it is, and especially with so like quote-unquote expert users because they're often operating the most dangerous equipment. I feel like I have another question about uh, this movement in relation to kind of mainstream computing, but I'm not quite sure how to ask it. Um, can you talk about what this trend looks like in terms of just our desktop and notebook PCs, for example? Yeah. Um, so uh, let's see. OK, so one aspect that might be invisible to an everyday user of their computer is that a lot of the features of your computer are communicated in metaphors, basically. So you have a recycle bin. Like, that's not actually, you don't actually have, like, a recycling bin in your computer, obviously. You obviously. have, like, you have folders, um, which it's using these metaphors of, like, basically, a, like, a, a desktop, like, office sort of environment, basically. And it's using that previous knowledge of those metaphors to sort of, like, bootstrap your knowledge of how your computing system works. Sure. And actually, that reminds me, um, those metaphors don't always translate across operating systems either. When I first got a Mac, it took me the longest time to figure out that I had to drag uh, a disk drive icon to the trash to eject it. That was really counterintuitive to me because I wouldn't want to put my disk in the trash. Totally. Yeah, that's a completely like valid uh, yeah, re reason to have with one of those things. Yeah, it, it just doesn't doesn't make any sense at all because, yeah, the metaphors are clashing. Yeah. But at some point, I guess, if it's been that way long enough, then that does become canonical and people just kind of take it for granted. Yeah, and, like, things that seemingly aren't metaphorical are starting to become metaphorical now, like um, the save icon as a floppy disk. You know, like, kids today don't know what floppy disks are. They're just like, oh, it's the save icon. <laughs> Yeah, that's especially interesting in the case of devices that are um, that have never had a floppy disk drive, right? For example, if you have uh, an app on your iPad that uses uh, a disk icon to represent mm -hmm. a saving action, that's really something to think about. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks a lot for sharing all of this. If listeners would like to find out more about some of your work or see videos of Cuddle Bits, which I highly encourage everybody to do, uh, where should they go? They should check out the Spin Lab website. Just Google Spin Lab UBC. We got all of our projects on there. A lot of fun like videos and images and stuff like that. That sounds good. We'll also put the link in the show notes. It's a little bit long to read off. At this point, I'd like to talk a little bit about the broader applicability of your work. Um, how do you see your work contributing to the world at large or life outside the lab? 
So the stuff that I'm doing is just a tiny chunk of this larger field of research of effective computing and tangible computing. And I think in the far future, it's going to be pretty common to have our computers be sensitive to our emotions and also um, sort of reinstate touch as a mode of interaction within computing. Is that something that we already see with the growing prevalence of touchscreen devices, smartphones, tablets, and so on? Totally. And it's something that we're pretty used to right now, but would look kind of weird if we like go back 20 years. Um, like We have a much more like tangible experience with our competing devices now. And before, when you look at all the kinds of like haptic feedback, with like game controllers and stuff like that. Yes, I remember Nintendo 64 Rumble Packs. Yeah, the N64 Rumble Pack was like a big deal. You would have to buy a separate thing and like slot it in. And now it's just like a given that your controller is going to have haptic feedback. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Thank you. Once again, I'm Dimitri Detweiler, and this is Multipodality. You can find us on Twitter at Multipodality or visit us at our website at multipodality.wordpress.com to find out more about us and see some of our other podcasts. Our podcasts are also available on iTunes. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, and please share this with someone you know who might also enjoy it. Multipodality is supported by the Department of Language and Literacy Education at the University of British Columbia. Our executive producer is Kay Hare. Our production coordinator is Nina Conrad. Our social media coordinator is Lisa Navarro. Our technical coordinator is Adam Sheard. And I'm your host, Dimitri Detweiler. Thank you for listening. One more question before I let you go. How would you describe your work at Spin Labs in just one word? Haptoradical. Haptic, haptic radical. Hap, haptoradical. Dude, I'm sorry for that. I'm really sorry. Can you deconstruct that a it's little like bit haptic, for us? haptic, haptic radical. A it's haptic, like haptic radical. radical. Yeah. Radical in what sense? Um, like, like cool extreme. It's actually not that extreme. <laughs> I, don't <know. laughs> I don't know why I said that. The cuddle bits are pretty extreme. They are pretty extreme. They're yeah. amazing. Yeah. Especially like the one that was dressed up in the mop head. Oh, yeah. I don't think it was literally a mop head, but I could see why you would think it's a mop head. Yeah.